This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of February 13, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 416 of Defender Radio. You'll have to forgive my voice in this introduction. The winter cold I thought I'd escape for the year has come for me with vengeance dripping from its claws. But, despite the desire to hide under a blanket and whine at my wife, which she said would make her my ex-wife, I've mustered the strength and closets worth of pharmaceuticals to carry forward for you. Oh, but baby. (laughs) There is a war on wildlife in the United States, waged with federal dollars at the behest of large lobby groups. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but there is no hiding the nefarious truth about this one. The United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA, has an offshoot called the Wildlife Services Program. This division has, for decades, slaughtered wildlife to the tune of 500 animals per day across America. Despite the ongoing rise in scientific evidence pointing toward coexistence as a successful strategy to ending or preventing wildlife conflict, this agency continues in its Wild West style of management. But standing up for the animals are numerous non-profits, including the Wild Earth Guardians. The group recently updated and re-released their in-depth solution-oriented report, War on Wildlife, that looks at the Wildlife Services Program and accompanies a new, action-focused website, and the WarOnWildlife.org, to help American supporters take action against the killing. To discuss the report, the history of the USDA's Wildlife Services Program, and how we can all fight the war on wildlife, Defender Radio was joined by Wild Earth Guardians Wildlife Coexistence Campaigner Dr. Michelle Lute and carnivore advocate Kelly Noakes. I, we, we've got kind of a lot of different things I think we need to cover today, um, you know, uh, least of which is the, the updated report, War on Wildlife. Uh, regarding the USDA's Wildlife Services Program. Uh, we've got you know a new political administration happening uh, in the United States that's really sort of rattling a lot of people in the scientific and nonprofit communities. Um, and, and we've got sort of the current state of science itself and sort of the new things that are coming up and pushing out old ideas. I thought, though, to start, if we, we look at the, the history of the Wildlife Services, Services Program, there is a nice sort of relatively short write-up in the report. But if you could summarize maybe just sort of where this, this comes from, because I don't think we have anything in Canada quite like it. I don't think there's anything like it in the world, to be honest. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not familiar with a, a comparable program um, in anywhere else but um obviously there's lots of places that um kind of have these myths and prejudices about carnivores um keeping them using outdated science and and lethal technology to um get rid of carnivores on public land so that's not necessarily unique but yeah this this program being under um, the u.s department of agriculture is also um sort of an anomaly because um wildlife services is managing wildlife. So it really should be in the Department of the Interior. Uh, And that's, um, I think you'll see in the report, one of the recommendations we have um, for reform. Um, But to and jump in at any point, Kelly, if you want to talk about uh, any of the history of wildlife services. But 
um, you know, it's, it's this old idea of animal damage control and it's based on these, um, myths and prejudices about, um, carnivores being bad. Um, so wildlife services claims that its goal is quote unquote to allow people and wildlife to coexist, but really nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, the name is actually quite ironic, I think, um, because the only thing they really serve are, are ranching and ag- agricultural interests. Um, so they keep, they keep wedded to this, this lethal arsenal and this um, old science, even though the best available science keeps coming out and we've been trying to remind them and uh, make all of that science available. And they even have a research center where they do test uh, new non-lethal methods, um, but they're not operating them on the ground. And they really just operate with this implicit goal that the only good coyote or wolf uh, is a dead one. So it's it's really quite unfortunate that they've been so reluctant to change. Well, and this this isn't new either. They've been around, um, you know, in your report right here, it says uh, since the late 19th century. Um, and that's maybe not the actual wildlife services. That's sort of its predecessor. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's changed names a few times, um, but they're still operating with the same archaic tools like uh, you know, traps, snares, and poisons. Like these things are indiscriminate, they're cruel, and there's way more effective tools to be using. And, and yet they refuse to use them in most instances. Well, and if we look at that historical perspective, um, and, and I think Kelly, you may be able to jump in on this part. Is this like, was there ever science that indicated that carnivores were a problem or was it very simply a cultural issue that people sort of saw carnivores as a way to manage it? Well, like it says in the report, I mean, the federal wildlife killing dates back to before there was even statutory authority for wildlife services or its predecessor to even exist. And a lot of that is based on the cultural um, norms of the time as far as these were back in the days of frontier settlement and we're coming into land and taking over by planting crops and there's bears in the way there's there's predators that are eating our cows and so it all comes back to that cultural sense more so than I think the science-based sense Um, and that's what really before I mean the the program was in existence just in the most basic sense of the government was responsible for clearing the land for settlers to come out and to make it more amenable to, to um, develop the area and settle there. And then they actually got the statutory authority to do so under the Animal Damage Control Act back in 1931. And what's unfortunate is that act is still in place, very much in the same language. I mean, I even have the original authorizing principle in our in our report there, and you can see that from Wildlife Services website, very little has changed. They've always looked at wildlife as a problem, as opposed to a natural part of the ecosystem. And I think it's very important too to point out the uh, the funding structure. Uh, and I believe uh, Michelle, you sort of started to allude to this, um, but we can see in in the report they from the and again I like it's the last available data, which is what 2014 2015. Um, their budget what was what in excess of 167 million or some some figure that almost seems ridiculous. Right. So from from 2012 to 2014, uh, they spent over 182 million dollars. Is one of the the stats that we put out, and that's solely federal funds. That's not even counting the funds that cooperators contribute. 
Uh, and that resulted in 4.9 million native animals being killed by all these various methods. Yeah, and it's um, in that period too, you know, that that, em- that amounts, the 4.9 million native animals, to 4,500 native animals killed every single day. And right. I don't know... I I I I have I get I get stuck on the USDA uh, every time I speak about it. I just I do not understand. Um, you know, in Canada, we we've got some really really bad policies, but it's pretty obvious what they're trying to do at the very least. Um, whether or not you agree with it or the science agrees with it, it doesn't matter. But in this case, what possible benefit is there in 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 trying to sort of be in their shoes to killing this extraordinary volume of animals, particularly when we start talking about predators or slowly reproducing uh, carnivores? I mean, that's a great question. And that's the one that we all have. We're all scratching our heads on that because um, there's these outmoded ideas that you can simply just wipe out coyotes across a landscape and that's going to help you during calving season. But the new science is now showing, and it's not even that new, but um, increasingly every year we're getting more and more information that's showing um, coyotes will respond to that like rampant killing with uh, compens- compensatory breeding. Um, so these these gains that ranchers think they're seeing are, are really short term, um, and it disrupts age structure. It disrupt disrupts pack dynamics. Um, so we've probably got younger individuals that are out, um, and more likely to attack livestock because they're less experienced and they don't have the adults that are more experienced at, um, identifying native prey. So it's, it's really creating a lot of chaos on the landscape. That's not serving anybody, not even agricultural interests. And we've got, again, lots more new science testing all these non-lethal methods. So it's, it's a matter of, I think, habit to a certain extent and what people are comfortable with. And um, there's probably lots of folks that grew up with traps and aerial gunning and uh, to adapt and use new tools is, is tough for everybody, but it's, it's well past due. It's, you know, it's time to use these new tools that would best serve everybody, um, protect livestock and wolves and other carnivores. And Kelly, how do people come to use the USDA Wildlife Service? That's that's another part that's um, a little unusual, uh, particularly from the Canadian standpoint where uh, it's all provincial or, or the equivalent would be state run. Um, so how does, you know, if, if I'm running a community and the farmers are saying, gosh, darn it, these coyotes, what, what sort of what happens between then and USDA coming in and, and just Killing. Well, Wildlife Services is a cooperator-led program, and so basically they only respond to requ- to requests for, for assistance, whether that's from a private individual, a private rancher, or that's from a state entity like a state wildlife management authority. Um, and so they actually, they, they only respond to requests for action. So you need to file a request with Wildlife Services for any sort of killing to occur, and then they also require that you adopt a that you sign a memorandum of agreement, um, which allows them to come onto their onto your land or your property and to conduct the killing activities that they agree to. So it's very much a cooperator-led program. But that said, um, there's 4,500 4, 4, or 4,500 animals killed daily 
buy this program. And so you can just imagine the number of requests that they're getting for these services and how it's just become ranchers are having an issue. They're going to call up wildlife services and they're going to expect them to come solve the problem. And I say solve in quotation marks as far as are they really solving the problem, as Michelle alluded to. The science shows that they are not. Well, and the other thing, too, in the U.S., um, which, again, is is difference and I think is very, very important to point out relatively early on in any conversation like this, is the the use of public raising land. Um, it's, it's a very unique I believe, idea uh, compared to what we have here where you don't, the, a lot of the ranchers may not own the property where their uh, their cattle goes out to graze. And that's I my understanding, and I may be very wrong here, but that is often a site of conflict is when these animals go off on their own with minimal supervision and conflict occurs, however it may come out. Absolutely. Um, and I'll oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so uh, could you sort of maybe explain how how that process works too? Just sort of an, a very brief overview of it. The process of, of grazing on public lands? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, you, I think, summarized it quite well already. Um, there's plenty of areas where um, ranchers can have, um, can get permits to, to graze their cattle on public lands that are managed for multiple interests, including um, people who want to recreate on these lands. Um, if they're forest service lands, sometimes they're being um, used for timber as well. So there's multiple interests involved in these lands and ranchers uh, can get permits that are uh, federally subsidized. So they're, they're essentially putting their um, cattle out um, for, for prices that they wouldn't necessarily be paying for land in other places. So and that's, that's a key part of our, um, one of our asks for reform is that, you know, this is public land that belongs to everybody, all citizens of the United States. Um, so it should be managed as such. And right now it's being managed for uh, private agricultural interests. And we're hoping that um, this program can reform to at least recognize that there are people who want to safely recreate on these lands and they have just as much of a legitimate interest um, as, as these ranchers do. And something I find curious, um, is the, the process of trying to talk to these individuals, whether they're landowners, uh, or, or, you know, districts or states who are running into conflict, whatever it may be. And I, I deal with this sometimes too, when we talk about, uh, you know, very local level, uh, conflicts, uh, prevention and mitigation, and say, you know, we can provide you with educational materials, we'll do seminars, uh, but a level of work has to be done on the ground by the people who live there. And that's often where things seem to break down, Mm -hmm. especially when, uh, depending on the area, uh, you have someone sitting there saying, I'll go out and kill all these animals for you, or I'll Mm -hmm. remove them humanely, as they may say. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we, and, and this is, a huge question that I'm going to insist on a very brief, concise answer to, because it's fun to be mean. Um, <laughs> how do we talk about this? So, I mean, we see wildlife services killing almost endlessly animals with un- unmeasurable impact on the ecosystem. Um, and at the same time, we have this science that's showing us these coexistence method work. How do we have that conversation? Uh, particularly, I would think, uh, in areas where, you know, the, the agricultural interests uh, have become the culture? 
that's, I mean, that's a great question. I think the key will be um, to work with people on the ground um, to implement these new non-lethal tools. So, uh, for instance, aerial gunning is is quite an expensive endeavor, and it takes quite a bit of time. So, um, we're we're asking that people consider new, more effective tools that are not anywhere near as expensive as aerial gunning. They do require effort and time on the ground, and so there's uh, a bit of a cultural shift that has to happen. Um, but I think once we can make the case, when we can sit down and talk to folks and and show them the science and well, and the numbers on how this is effective and can work. Um, I think when we can have those open conversations then we can start to uh, work together towards um, a better management of public lands and protecting livestock and our native carnivores. And if I might just chime in to add to that, another key part of that is taking away this tool that is readily at, at um, the fingertips of ranchers using public lands. I mean, if we take away wildlife services ability to use lethal control on our public lands, which is a reasonable request from our point from our point of view, considering these public lands belong to all of us, if we can take away that tool, then they're gonna be forced to consider these non-lethal actions and see that if they actually deploy them, this could be a win-win situation for us all. So I think taking away that tool from the toolbox is a key part of it as well. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, when you when you f- get into a position where killing isn't an option. And I see that a lot in our urban centers when we talk uh, particularly about coyotes. And I'm sure both of you have dealt with this too. And they say, well, we've got to get rid of these coyotes. And you say, there is no safe way to do that. Like uh, whether you're talking downtown Hamilton or Toronto or, you know, right in the middle of Santa Fe or Chicago – you can't put out traps. You can't have guns. You can't have poison. Um, and you have to find another way to do it. And that's where some of these really great programs develop. Um, why wouldn't the wildlife services embrace some of these things? <laughs> um, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I'm not in the minds of any of wildlife services other than just it's the status quo. That and just to add to that, I think there's a whole culture built up about around their historic techniques. Many people working for wildlife services still think trapping is a sport that has historical notions and is an important facet of our history and a historical ton- hunting technique. Whereas if you look at it now, I mean, from my point of view and from many view- members of the public point of view, it's a cruel technique to kill an animal. It's not a quick kill. It's not a fair chase kill. So there's this whole culture, I think, that we need to overcome within wildlife services and the employees of wildlife services itself, as far as getting past what is normal and what is acceptable in today's, in today's society. And looking at this report, sort of overall, uh, I, I've, I've skimmed it, I've read it cover to cover, I've skimmed it again. Um, it's a very well put together report that provides the history, the costs, um, some of the potential, you know, fallout of how the USDA is currently running their wildlife services program. Uh, and it sets out very clear solutions as well, uh, which we've, we've discussed a few of them. And I think that's always a priority uh, when we're talking about these, these changes is having these, uh, as you call them, recommendations for reform. Um, and they're all reasonable as well. That's, that's sort of the best part. What would you like the public to do with this? I mean, I know you've got a 
uh, uh, a campaign website and the War on Wildlife, and that's one of the places where this lives. Um, is this the kind of document you, you expect the, all of the public to read all the way through? Or is it maybe more of a resource for those uh, who are in a position to talk about it? Yeah, I believe we, we see this report as, um, you know, available and open to anybody who really wants to dig into uh, the history and where we would like to see reform go for this program. Uh, as you mentioned, the new website that we have in the waronwildlife.org that's meant to be more broadly uh, available to the public. And so one of the key points of intervention that we're planning next is to look at county contracts. So Kelly was talking about the various cooperators that reach out to wildlife services. They can be private individuals, but often there are county commissions that contract with wildlife services. And so one of the places that we're looking um, to intervene is to get um, these county contracts canceled. So we need the public to be reaching out to their commissioners and saying, hey, we don't support these contracts. We want uh, coexistence, non-lethal mandates happening in our county to manage our public lands. And the, the science certainly backs a move like that. Again, looking at the, the, the local or microscopic level, um, we, we see that when we use lethal control, as we said with coyotes, as sort of the ideal example, um, I, I actually I was looking at a study just the other day. I think it's a few years old now, but it stated um, even when coyote populations were reduced by as much as seventy percent, within two years the population had completely rebounded. Um, and coyotes are not that easy to kill in large numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very smart. They're very adaptable. And as you said, we've also seen the reproductive rates increase. So it is this maybe also a financial issue? Um, you know, is this where the commission, the, the county can say, we've got these complaints. Let's get USDA to come in and take care of it for us versus let's enact, you know, uh, reforms or bylaws or what have you. That will require change locally. That will require our costs to maybe be adapted to this. When the county says we uh, we want to bring in wildlife services, um, and is there a cost to the county, or does the the federal funding cover that? Right. So a lot of federal funding will cover it, but. Uh, in most instances, the cooperator also provides a certain amount of money, and, and that varies substantially depending on the cooperator. Okay, so it, it is unlikely then that they are looking at this purely as a financial sort of if, if it costs more to do one than the other. I mean, I'm sure that's a consideration, but it wouldn't be any different um, for non-lethal because wildlife services could be helping them with that and still be providing federal funds to do so, which would be more in line with um, what would be an ethical use of, of taxpayer dollars. Well, and that just to chime into your first point, you you made an excellent statement that says that killing these coyotes is not solving the problem. Two years later, they're going to have to do this all over again. So if they actually use those funds to deploy non-lethal techniques and try to actually come up with a real solution to the problem, that's that. there's your economical argument right there. I mean, the studies show that within two years of killing all these coyotes, they're just going to come right back and rebound. So that's a huge part of the argument as well, I would say. Yeah, and that's I was actually just talking with someone today about that and saying uh, it's better to have a coyote that knows you're not a food source. Um, so they you, there are no attractants, and if you come too close, you're going to get hazed. Then new coyotes coming in, 
and exploring or maybe not learning those lessons. Exactly. Uh, we, we can, in some ways, train wildlife like that. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, I'd like to, to sort of move a little bit away from the report. And there's two things I really wanted to cover off that I think the two of you are kind of uniquely situated to speak about. One is the, the overarching North American model of uh, wildlife conservation, which is very much what a lot of our, and I say our, I mean Canada and the United States, have our wildlife policies based upon. Um, you know, it says that we shouldn't commercialize it, that uh, we have to use science, that we have to make sure there's an ongoing population, etc. But a lot of criticisms say that it's all human-centric or anthropocentric, okay. um, in that the entire thing is not about protecting wildlife, but ensuring continued use of wildlife mm-hmm. for people. Is that maybe something that we need to be looking at as well? The, the understanding we have of the history of our interactions with wildlife. Um, because, you know, I see the quote from Aldo Leopold on your, um, uh, on your report. And I think of the number of times I'll see uh, trappers, whether they're, you know, professional fur trappers or hobbyists, um, or sport hunters who say, you know, we pay for all of this. We manage all of this. It's because of hunters that wildlife conservation exists. But that's not really true. Um, you know, they played a part in it. So how do we reframe that discussion, which I, I kind of personally feel is a huge part of the culture mm-hmm. around getting change made now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think it's going to take restructuring um, how state agencies, state wildlife management agencies are funded. Um, The sportsman community um, has been involved, as you've mentioned, um, and right now Pittman-Robertson Act means that um, the the taxes around firearms and and the purchase of bullets and all the sportsman-related equipment goes towards... um, state agency. So we need to expand that to include photography equipment and um, outdoor gear of all sorts so that we can say there's all these folks who are contributing to conservation. It's not just um, hunters and and trappers and and fishermen. Um, And and those ideas have been thrown around and there have been initiatives in a number of places to try and expand the use of Pittman-Robertson dollars, Um, but they've been fought um, there's been strong, powerful lobbies against um, broadening that that funding structure. So that's something that needs to change, but is um, going to be quite a battle. And I would just chime in that the reason that there's such opposition to that is because the hunters and the sportsmen don't want to give up the control that they have over the model currently. I mean, that's the huge part. I mean, it comes down to as Michelle mentioned, reforming our the way the structure of state agencies, wildlife management agencies, but also just importantly restructuring wildlife, um, fish and wildlife game commissions as well. And these are the people that are actually the state agencies are supposed to be held accountable to who are making these decisions. And most of them aren't even scientists. They're not even biologists. There are a lot of sportsmen's interests or a lot of development interests who have that seat at the table right now, whereas conservationists and people who believe in the sense that, you know, our government has a public trust responsibility, not just to our generation, but to future generations as well, to maintain and restore native ecosystems, including native carnivores, 
and to live and coexist with them for future generations. And so that's a huge part of it is the sense that the sportsmen already have the upper hand on us with the seat at the table and we're trying to battle our way in, which is a very key part of our campaign, I would say, most definitely. Well, and that's certainly uh, something that I personally focus on a lot is maintaining that sort of um, scientific basis. While I am by no means a scientist, my background is journalism, it's, it's the same principle, though, of being able to corroborate and prove what I'm saying. And I think that's something that uh, Wild Earth Guardians is doing uh, an outstanding job on. Um, and something that we, we certainly try and strive towards as well is saying, like, we're not just saying don't do this. We're saying, here's why you shouldn't be doing it. Here's what happens when you do it. And here's the solution that we could try differently. Uh, but that kind of reasoning these days seems to be not so popular, which brings us along <laughs> to the next happy point. Um, politics in the United States. Uh, you know, I, I want to make a joke about about putting up a wall or going further north. But I find it very difficult. You know, as much as I laugh at the comedy, it's still astounding what's happening. And I'm not going to ask you directly about the great orange one, because um, I do recognize that you have to remain somewhat nonpartisan. But is there a, a, a fear? Like, we, we had a prime minister who for years silenced scientists. And it was terrifying because we simply, we didn't know anymore. We weren't getting reports. We didn't know what populations were doing. Um, we didn't know if new ideas were being tried. Um, and it was a very frightening time to be in the business of uh, wildlife advocacy. Is that sort of the culture maybe or the climate that's starting to appear on the horizons there? Well, I mean, there's definitely lots of regrouping and thinking about new strategies to move forward. Um, I think within the scientific community, there was obviously a bunch of scrambling to protect climate change data. Um, but in terms of our work with wildlife, um, I wouldn't say there's as much fear as um, this has been a, a wake-up call, uh, a cause to rally around, and um, we're, we're seeing a lot of cohesion within the environmental community to work together and make our voices heard and make sure that the science isn't silenced. Um, so it's a challenge, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily, um, we're not being driven by fear. Well, and just to add to that, I would say that I'm, I'm an attorney for guardians. And so a lot of my work focuses on the legal aspects, which the science directly plays into every case that we litigate. And I would say that what we're seeing now is how intertwined the politics is becoming into decisions that should be based clearly on the best available science. And so it is, it is concerning how we're, we're experiencing different political bills, legislative bills that are trying to override the science, like the Great Lakes um, wolf mm -hmm. delisting bill that's going through the legislature. And um, bills like that, or I work, I work primarily on carnivores in the West, and um, grizzly bears are a big issue right now in the greater Yellowstone delisting contests or removing Endangered Species Act protections from Yellowstone grizzly bears. And we fear the similar thing that's going on with wolves to a degree as far as the science says that these, these animals are not ready to remove their federal protections, yet politicians are taking that science into their own hands and twisting it to say, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we want it this way and this is where we're going to go. And so I would, I would agree with the way Michelle answered that question, but I would also say that's still very cautious 
um, that we do need to make sure that we have those scientist voices that are being pushed forward and that we, we uh, from the nonprofit environmental community can play a role as far as getting some of that science into the hands of the public, whereas maybe our government officials, as sad as that is, cannot. I would certainly say that getting the science and science education to me over the last couple of months is becoming more of a priority and I'm seeing it. Uh, I think some of the incredible things happening with some of your state uh, and I'm sorry, your federal agencies um, on social media, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I wrote about uh, what the National Park Service did mm-hmm. and how inspiring it is and how in these times speaking out with the truth with fact is perhaps our most powerful weapon um, to protect wildlife. Um, so I, I'm very hopeful to see that uh, and to know there's organizations like yours and many others uh, uh, working for the animals in the United States. And you mentioned uh, the Great Lakes wolf delisting. Um, I read a bit about that and I understand many people are calling it the War on Wolves Act. Um And I think there's also a secondary bill, which more or less does the same thing for a different region. But you're also calling your campaign End the War on Wildlife. Um, And one of my big things has always been sensationalism. Um, That's actually how I got into wildlife advocacy from journalism was that congruence of coyote sensationalism into advocating. Um, But I have to ask... Is this sensationalism? Is there really a war on wildlife or a war on wolves? Or is this maybe sort of some kind of a, a marketing spin? Uh, where Where is the, the, and I don't want to use the word truth, but it, it really is sort of the, the best term. Where is the truth in this concept of a war on wolves or a war on wildlife? That's a great question. And, and I would say it's it's not sensationalized at all when you look at the tools that they're using. And they're literally using everything in a lethal arsenal to kill carnivores and completely wipe them out. Um, The aerial gunning, poisons, traps, all of these things are just like barbaric tools with no holds barred. And when the aim is to wipe out an entire population of coyotes across the landscape, I don't know what else to call that other than war. And I would also just add to that, aside from the physical tools and what's happening on the ground, is also the political warfare. I mean, they're using tools legislatively to try to wipe out these populations, not only just with the physical means of of shooting and trapping, but also giving the people on the ground that authority to do so. So I would totally agree that it's a full-on war on our wildlife. There is a lot of resistance right now uh, through social media, through nonprofits, through advocacy, and I think the ultimate question, I mean, for, for, for folks in our positions, you know, we've got a lot of meetings, we're talking amongst ourselves a lot, as you said, establishing, you know, where we can maybe target some campaigns, what's, where we should be using resources. But for our supporters, um, for, from the animal lovers up to the, the board members or, or uh, you know, voting members of organizations, what are the best steps they can be taking, particularly as it pertains to your End the War on Wildlife.org website and campaign, um, both for Americans and for Canadians and, and for our listeners worldwide? Where where should they be focusing their time and efforts to help this kind of advocacy move forward? Well, I think one of the first key steps is to raise public awareness. So sharing this information uh, with their friends and family and, and coworkers. Um, 
wildlife services in particular is, is working on public lands and people are getting, and their dogs are encountering these traps and poisons. Um, so we really need to get people aware that these dangers are out there. Um, I think that's the first step to, to making sure that these tools can be taken away because the vast majority of Americans and um, I'm sure Canadians, North Americans of all types are not supportive of, of traps, poisons and snares on their public lands. So they need to be aware that they're out there so that they can protect themselves first and foremost um, and their companion animals and then um, work to contact their, their representatives and say, hey, this needs to stop. To learn more about Wild Earth Guardians, visit wildearthguardians.org. To read the report, War on Wildlife, or take action, visit endthewaronwildlife.org. That's the show for this week, folks. Hope you join us for the next one. And remember, we're now on Google Play, iTunes, Player FM, TuneIn, and YouTube, making it easier than ever for you to listen in and share with your friends. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.